Welcome to Meaningful Meditation for Life, hosted by Dr. Erhard Vogel, who has taught among the Himalayan sages for the past 50 years and is recognized around the world as a master teacher of self-realization. On this podcast, we invite you to discover his teachings, guided meditations, and classes. You'll return over and over to your favorite episodes in the archive and continue to grow with each new episode. This is the Fundamental Meditation Series. You'll learn meditation and self-realization from a master teacher. You'll learn the importance of knowing who you really are and experiencing a life true to yourself. This podcast series reflects just a portion of the eight-week program with Dr. Vogel. For the optimal experience, please start with week one and follow along for all eight weeks. Each week will begin with a class and be followed by a meditation. Thank you, everyone. And I thank Mimi for affording us the opportunity to use her beautiful center. And this really is a center for health. Uh, People come here to find real health and not just to take care of problems, but to go beyond that. And that's very much what our teachings are about here. We teach what is called an expert in life program. And when people ask me, what do you do? I say, well, I'm a teacher of an expert in life program. What is that? Because that's like a strange concept, is to be expert at leading your own life. People think it's it's important to be expert at your profession or, I don't know, whatever your hobby is, right? But expert at leading my own life, that's a different concept. And I feel that, no, I I know, not just feel, I know that your life is the most most important thing you have to take care of. And with most people, it's also the most neglected thing to take care of, or forgotten about even, right? So, I mean, even ask yourself right now, When is the last time I thought in terms of being expert at conducting my life to my fulfillment? Most people don't even know what fulfills them. You you smile at me funny. (laughs) In order to be able to know what fulfills you, you have to know whom you're trying to fulfill, right? And you ask sometimes, ask your friends, like if you remember tonight, Who are you? You know what kind of answer you'll get? What are you talking about? Are you okay? What's the matter? (laughs) Right? Because the concept of who are you, we don't take care of really answering that. Or if we do, we come up with some careless answer that often has nothing to do with who essentially you are. It may have something to do with who superficially you are. I'm a blonde, I'm a brunette. Well, if you dye your hair, are you still you? Yes, right? And so on. I'm a plumber, I'm a housewife, I'm a doctor. Well, if you change profession, are you still you? Yes, you are. Well, who are you then, essentially? If you don't know that, then how do you know whom you're trying to fulfill in your life? Does that make sense? So what we're talking about here is a most practical approach to a fulfilling and dynamic and really successful life. A life that fulfills the meaning, the meaning for which you are in this life. Is there a meaning to your life? 
do you know what it is? Because if you don't know what the meaning of your life is, as is the case with most people, then how can you live in accord to that meaning? But if you don't live in accord to the meaning of your life, how can it be meaningful? <laughs> right? How can it make sense? How can it be fulfilling to you, successful for you in the real sense of the word? So in life we travel a path. And it's actually, it's an evolutionary path, as everything in nature is on the path of evolution. As human beings, we have, on the evolutionary scale, a very high opportunity. Because more than most creatures that we know of, we have fabulous instruments that we call our faculties, our mind, our mind is amazing. Well, some people's minds. <laughs> well, no, actually, the minds are amazing. The way we use them is not always the best, right? So our mind, our feelings and emotions, they are capable of things that are even beyond the mind. Our intellect can be so concise and so clear and so powerful. Our senses are amazing how they let us know about the world around us. Our emotions and feelings about the world within us. They're all wonderful instruments of experience. The ultimate experience is the one of being. The very fact that we are, which we often get so distracted from, from the things that are supposed to be part of the experience that we forget about the experience of being and being ourselves. So the path of evolution for us human beings is to be able to rise to total consciousness, total awareness of being in relationship to all. That is what makes for fulfillment ultimately. Now, that's just words, but it's the words designating the truth. But we need to understand those words, what they mean. And though that understanding comes from your own direct experience. I always say to my students, especially when I have new students in my class, don't ever, what? Don't ever believe anything that I say. Don't believe me. And I mean it. Do you know why? Because believing is lazy. You need to know. You need to know, and the only way you really know is through your own experience. When you can experience something and say, this I know is so. I have now, just now experienced it. I know it is so. There is an inner knower by which you can have certainty of knowledge. If you don't pervert it, if you don't mess it up with your likes and dislikes. Do you understand? Because they, they can interfere with knowing reality. So this path that we travel on is the path to potential fulfillment, fulfillment of the meaning of our life, the meaning of our being, and the fulfillment of ourselves in this life. So, well, what does fulfillment mean? It's a state where you're filled full with the experience of being to such an extent that there's nothing less lacking. Nothing missing. You understand? Can you imagine being in that state where 
There's nothing lacking anymore. Nothing is needed anymore. You're totally fulfilled. You're satisfied. You're at peace. You're at ease. Now, you don't get that state by going to Nordstrom. You understand? <laughs> it's a state you have to find within yourself. But you only find it within yourself when, you, when your faculties, your mind and feelings and emotions and senses and intellect and intuition, they become in com such deep relationship with you, the being that you are, that it becomes a unity a oneness. There's no more separation. These faculties are then in harmony with each other, because normally they are not. The mind wants one thing, the feelings want something else, and the senses want that cheesecake, and the mind says, no, you shouldn't have that, you're too fat already, and so on and so on, right? So when they're all at peace with each other, and in a state of harmonious balance, you can learn to bring them to a state of perceptiveness that takes place on all levels of experience, from the subtlest to the highest to the deepest, on every level, from the material realm to the subtlest spiritual realms. When that perception takes place, you're in the awareness of the wholeness of being. That's then the universality of all being and your oneness with that is experienced. Again, that may sound like fancy words, but it's only a, a, a small attempt to, to get towards an understanding of that wonderful, blissful, beautiful, fulfilled state that we are all yearning for. All. I'll give you a proof. Do you know anybody who doesn't want to be loved? Would you believe when I say, can you experience within yourself that everyone wants to be loved? That's, that's a union between us. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be deeply, as deeply as we want to be loved, we want to be one with ourselves. Understand? We want to be in harmony with ourselves. We want to be in knowledge with ourselves. That state does not come about by accident. <clears throat> it does not come around by getting older and waiting for it, as some of you may have experienced. <laughs> I use the term sometimes like, okay, what would happen if, you know how they say at the end of your life, you go through a few moments of sort of a review of your life, right? And you came, to, imagine you had this whole review of your life and you came to the conclusion that all of your life you've barked up the wrong tree. Wouldn't that be tragic? That is the case with many people, though, because they never found out what, what life is really about. So, the book that we're talking about here today, The Four Gates, is a book about a person like all of us who lives a life like most of us live. And through the suffering in that life is inspired to find a path 
to get to the realm of fulfillment. And it's four stages that you go through. And we'll tell you more. But it occurred to me just the other day, I was talking to Pam and I was saying, you know, I think I should talk about something that I don't talk about often. It's how I got started on this path. I have the great, greatest master teacher to thank for getting me on the path to getting straight and straightening up. <laughs> and that teacher's name is Death. The master of all teaching is Death. The reason I say that is I recognized a long time ago, if it weren't for death, we would never get our act together. We just kind of lollygag around and stuff like that, but we know death is, uh, is going to be happening. So we, sometimes some people say, well, I better get, get my act together, right? But for me, it was, I grew up in World War II and in a city that was severely bombed for months and months on end, when I was five years old, the war got to us. And so I lived with, with death and shredded bodies and body parts flying around and people being buried underneath their buildings, their homes, and so on. So I knew death, of death. I didn't know the death, but I knew of death. And when I was five years old, there was one day an air raid where we ran down into the basement, into the cellar, and usually we, we had gone through stages of, since so many people got buried underneath their homes, we'd go out and run, when there was an air raid warning, we'd run into the hills, we lived down in, in the Alps, we'd run, hide in the mountains, in the forests. Well, then when the forces find out that this is where the civilians were hiding. They would machine gun strafe the forest and kill the people there. So then we decided that's not good. Uh, so we hid in the plains. We would dig a hole and put like branches over it and so on. And then during the air raid, we'd hide in that hole. But then the, the, the fighter pilots found out and they were going to come and strafe us in the holes. And I remember as a five-and-a-half-year-old boy seeing a fighter come so low, strafing us with machine guns, I saw his head. With a, a, they had in those days leather helmets, and I still have that picture inscribed in my memory because I was so astonished that a human being would do this. Before that, it was just machines and stuff, but that's actually a human being, you know. And then there were people around us lying dead and so on. So this one, one afternoon is an air, air raid and we run into the cellar. And the bombs are getting so close that the house next to us is like in a crater from a bomb. And there was a bunch of people down in that cellar with us, neighbors. And uh, my family, we decided to stand underneath an stone archway in order and press against each other to, to protect ourselves against the vacuum that's caused when a bomb goes off in your building uh, that can plaster you against the stone wall and make, you know, mincemeat out of you. So while this was going, we knew that the bomb, the bombs were 
getting this close. And as a five-and-a-half-year-old five child, I felt I was going to die. And I wanted to be completely... Where did I get this from? I have no idea. Don't ask. I wanted to be completely present as, I, as the bomb hit and I was going to be plastered against the wall as I was going to go from life in this body to whatever came next. But I knew there was a continu continu continuation there. Don't ask me how. I knew. And so I focused so strongly to be completely there, to be present in that experience so that I could, when, I'm, when the body's gone, I could still be me, right, in the next stage. I was so focused, the lights went on inside of me. It's like I was so total in the experience of being that I would go on being even if the body wasn't there anymore. And then the bomb hit. And then our, our home got just totally destroyed on top of us. And then there was like over there with our TV, it was another room in the cellar that was lined on three sides with people sitting on benches. They were all dead. They were still sitting there. They were all dead. But we pressed under the arch. We survived. Then we went, we went upstairs after the, the sirens went off and everything was destroyed. It was like a science fiction scene. You know, sirens and blackness and smoke and dust and so on. But I was in this state of like complete being. It didn't matter. Except then I saw there was a bird in a tree that was, the tree was completely naked, but there was a bird sitting. How did it survive this? Then I saw our laundry line and it was just the laundry in there was destroyed by shrapnel and dirt. And I felt a sense of outrage. How could they do this to us, right? Our laundry. <laughs> and then the, I saw one of my, I was in charge of the chickens, and one of my chickens had survived, but it had a broken leg, so I knew it wasn't going to make it past the next day. So, but... And then I noticed that the state I had been of complete luminous beingness was being pulled towards this bird and towards this laundry line. And towards, in other words, my mind started getting active and, dis, and distract me from this luminous state I had experienced. And I said, no, because that's the way to be, that state, that continuous experience of being. That state. Now, I didn't have all of these words for it, but I knew all of that. I felt all of that, experienced all of that. So then I concluded that I have to do something to get my mind to stay where I wanted to stay and not interfere with my experience of being. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to take this care, take care of this tonight. I'm not even going to go indoor anywhere. There wasn't any more indoors, so that was easy. Uh, but I'm going to take care of it. Well, it wasn't as easy as getting it taken care of tonight. But I set out as a five-and-a-half-year-old boy to get my mind to be where I determined for it to be by putting it through very rigorous exercises. Like I'd, I'd repeat like the Lord's Prayer 
and each word had to be experienced. I had to experience the meaning of the word connected to the next word and the next and the next. And when I lost track, I'd start all over again. I spent many hours that way for many days, for years. And then came the time, like after about maybe a year and a half of this, that I was able to experience, to repeat that experience. That experience of being just totally present, completely conscious, all-inclusively engaged and connected. And the first time I had that experience, I called it the this is it experience, because this is why I am. I had wondered why, why did I survive? What for? This is why, to be in this experience. Well, I later found out when I wasn't a boy anymore, that this is the experience that the life of every one of us is for. And we all are striving for it. We don't all know about the fact that we're striving for that. Just like we, many people don't know that they want to be loved. And they live a life that makes, every, makes love almost impossible for them to be, to be given it, right? So we also live in the disregard of what fulfills us in life. So I went on going, I didn't know, in, I thought I was kind of strange. I didn't even know how I fit into my family because nobody else was engaged in any of this and I didn't know anybody else. But I knew that this, is, this was it. So then I pursued, I went through school and I came to this country when I was just a month shy of 15 years old. I came from Germany to here and I had to learn English and was very busy and all this kind of stuff and went to school and then I went to, to college and studied architecture and became a young famous architect in New York and all. So in other words, I was busy, but this was always underneath it. And I always lived in, that was my, my foundation, my reference point, my touchstone, you know. And then when I had achieved enough name and fame to decide that this was not what my life was for, to build ego structures for the overprivileged at the expense of the underprivileged, which is what I was doing in New York architecture. And so I decided I'm, I'm going to go and travel in the world to see how other people address the understanding, the knowledge of why they're in this life, what they're there for. Are they as distracted as we are? Are they as materialistic as we are? And I so found out, even like in, you know, uh, in, in India and in the, the Orient, we, at those times we had these little black Casio watches. Everybody wanted to see your watch and wanted to know if you had a refrigerator at home. So they were as materialistic. This is in the 1970s. They were as materialistic as we were. But not quite. I mean, there are whole cultures in the world where the people know that our life is about something more than the material realm, you know? But so when I came, so I traveled for four years on foot, living out of a backpack in a little tent through the world, and this way I got to know the people. 
and I mean, to some degree at least, as opposed to flying in on a plane and you know going to a hotel and doing the tourist thing. I went to the same markets and I slept on their streets or in my little tent and so on. But then when I came to the Himalayas, I met two world-renowned sages. Sages are luminous beings who have the experience of living, I found out, they knew what I experienced as a child. They knew about it. And they had, they had literature and scriptures, ancient scriptures, that talked about how to get to that state. And they lived in an ashram, which is a seat of learning, that is dedicated to helping people get to that state. So these were two luminous sages who, they were world-renowned, and they had I mean, devotees, I mean, more than what the Pope sometimes would have in terms of devotees. And we became very close friends because they were amazed that what I had developed as a child is the same stuff fundamentally as what they had in their ancient scriptures. And this is what, what Mimi was saying about the knowledge. The knowledge that we have here and that we have in India and that we have in nowadays is the same knowledge that is present everywhere all the time since ancient times, the same knowledge. Because knowledge is of reality. Knowledge is of what is. Not of opinions, not of belief systems, not of likes and dislikes, but what fundamentally is and always has been. That's the real knowledge. And that's what we are interested in being one with, because then you are never led astray. Okay. So they said, wow, how do you, you know, I, I was sort of like an unsophisticated primitive compared to them because I had done it on my own. They had all of these fabulous scriptures. And we became very close friends. And one of them administered the worldwide organization just staying in one place, and the other one wandered around the world. He was sort of like an ambassador, a traveling ambassador. And that was Swami Chidananda. And he was very beautiful and very beloved. And wherever he went, there would be people from various parts of the world come and be there with him just to be in his presence. So he came and we, we, I formed an, after my travels, I formed an ashram here in San Diego. And he came to visit with me at our ashram in the late 1970s or early 80s. And we did a one-week residential retreat together. We had a teaching center then uh, in, on Central Avenue. And so wherever he went, there was this mass of people. While well, they would have to stay at hotels, but they stayed the whole day with us. And we did this one-week retreat where he would teach one morning, I would teach in the afternoon, next day vice versa, and so on. And we'd go out to the ashram, we have wonderful times, and what have you. So the first time I had to teach, I came down from my, my upstairs room, saw this mass of people, and the, when I teach, I don't have something prepared. I, I usually sit in front of people, feel what they're about, and then start talking and hope something meaningful comes out. It usually works. So anyway, so I decide 
okay, here are these people. I've never met them before. They're from all over the world. I don't know anything about them. So I said to them, well, I wanted to give them, I said to myself, I want to give them something that is fundamental and that although they've been with Chidananda for many years, something that is, they will take home and be able to refer to all of their lives. So I said, look, some of us like to learn through stories and some of us like to learn through facts. So I'm now going to tell you a story of fact. So I made up this story, a saga, for one week. I just kind of winged it as I went along, made up this story about this wanderer as, that I referred to at the beginning, who lives in this realm of despair and darkness and so on, and then wanders towards knowledge and the light. And so that story became then the foundation for this book, okay? So I will read to you uh, a few segments because that's what I'm supposed to do. And start, we'll start appropriately in the beginning. So this starts out saying, most of us share in the same dilemma. We suffer from falsity and fear, right? Falsity and fear. In the perception of ourselves as limited and lacking. Sound familiar? Do you know any people like that? While deep within us stirs the knowledge of our heritage and our destiny of our interconnectedness and our potential for fulfillment. All about us is evidence of a life of separateness, of waiting, wanting, and yearning, of needing and desiring, of pain and sorrow, a life of deep-seated turmoil in which we feel afflicted by the lack of direction and decisiveness, a life of suffering. Let yourself feel this as we go along. And this is what I often ask people in the book. Okay, let yourself feel this right now. Let yourself experience it. Because then from there we go on to something very different, you know. So you may say you don't want such a life of suffering. Do you perhaps have the good fortune to know what you want? Not what you don't want, but what you want. What you really want. To know what you really want, you must know who you essentially are. For how can you be fulfilled in yourself if you do not know who you are? The knowledge of your real identity we will explore. So, and then I invite you to relax and enjoy, be focused and present. Savor and absorb the story. Keep your mind present and clear. Cause your mind to be like a tranquil mountain lake, able to absorb and reflect without distortion 
all this knowledge regarding the real self that you are. Open yourself to the experience of your history and your destiny. Once upon all time, there's a person who lives in a most miserable world. So experience yourself for the moment as this person. The place is barren and dreary. It feels cold and damp to the bone. It's filled with odors of putrefaction, dank and foul. The sounds are dissonant and painful to the ear. The sky is always gray, as is this land. You say, oh, I live in California, it's not like that. Yeah, but how about within the people, right? You can barely distinguish a horizon in the murky atmosphere. All is one vague muddiness. So allow yourself to feel this world. Nothing gives comfort here. Nothing feels good or pleasurable. The person dwelling here feels deeply unhappy. She wanders about day in and day out, not knowing where to go or what to do. Do you ever feel like that? Or how to earn relief, to earn relief from the discomfort and anxiety she perpetually suffers. She desperately attempts to survive in the lifeless, thoroughly depressing place. After all, this is where she has dwelled for as long as she can remember. So he wanders around and around in the barren land until one day he cannot go any further. He has fallen into a deep pit of despair. No longer can he wander aimlessly. He feels frozen in exhaustion, arrested in depression. His drive to move on is depleted. He finds himself severely limited, restricted. It seems as if all his options have been eliminated. There is nowhere to go. Do any of you find this familiar? You don't want to say it, right? He endeavors to climb out of the pit. He does this by making little attempts here and there, but each passing feint of escaping, escaping consumes more of his energy, energy he already desperately lacks. And eventually he loses all hope of ever freeing himself from this painful situation. He feels too depressed to even hope. Yet he still struggles, gnashing his teeth with despair and frustration. He knows not what to do. Throughout his life, he has looked for improvement, yearned for peace and vitality, for relief from this deeply depressing monotony. She has looked for clarity throughout her life, but found none. All she ever found was a thick fog limiting her view. She has always known she could never be happy here, but never knew what to do about it. Now she's stuck in this terrible pit filled with anger and fear. She struggles with even greater desperation and tenacity 
to claw herself out of this pit of despair. And one day as he struggles to climb out, just when things seem most hopeless, over the edge of the pit he catches a glimpse of something in the distance, radiantly beautiful and rich, promising joy and fulfillment. He has a brief but deep-reaching experience of an entirely different world. He experiences a suggestion of clarity. He feels the promise of freedom. That, that realm appears luminous, resplendent with all the colors of the rainbow. The atmosphere is clear and nurturing, soothing, loving, warm. It seems gentle and luxuriant, vibrant with fresh life. He is flooded with such a wealth of heart-stirring experience in that brief but potent moment that it leaves an indelible impression upon him. That wonderful glimpse is compelling enough to inspire in him great determination and focus to cease his habitual struggle to let go, and he delivers himself out of the pit. And once out of the pit, she starts walking with resolve on a direct path towards this luminous domain that is now the focal point of her life. As she consciously directs her actions to take her there, she keeps the sight of the beautiful realm in the forefront of her memory. This gives her the energy to persevere. Now, this is, this is a story of all of us. Have you not had moments of inspiration where you saw how you could live and how you would love to live? And now she, this one, this person, she uses that, as, that inspiration as the energy to get herself beyond, get herself out of her state. Okay? So she travels on. She finally comes to the realm of beauty. And she finds out she doesn't know how to get in. And she's also tempted. Now, there are a lot of moments like this which are familiar to, because this is the story of us. So she's tempted. She hears the beautiful realm, and she starts to worry about the home that she left behind, the realm of murk and depression and agitation, because that's familiar to her. Although before she realized I never really was at home there. Now it's familiar as if it were her home. So she's tempted, tempted to go back again. But she says, no, this is nonsense. So now she has to find a way in. Well, eventually, I mean, I'm cutting across the story now. Eventually, the doors open, and the royal person of the realm, the king, the queen, by the way, the genders are constantly male and female here, so as not this, this, this beyond gender, right? So the king-queen opens the gates and says, you're welcome into this realm. Come on in. And she goes to get in, and she finds there's like an invisible membrane she can't get across. So how to get in? Well, you have to have knowledge to get in, right? But she finds some, she sees some 
ordinary person over there, maybe the gardener or something like that, she says, hey, come, come here. How do I get in? And he asks, he doesn't answer. That's the problem with guys is they don't answer your question. They ask another question. He asked, well, are you ready? Are you qualified? What do you mean, am I qualified? What does that mean? Am I, am I qualified? I don't know. You know, and there we go. So eventually, that turns out, this ordinary looking fellow turns out to be her guide. And he very patiently and lovingly conducts a dialogue with her by which she qualifies. In other words, she develops her understanding and, and her knowledge to go through the various realms that the gates are an entrance to, the realms of development in our evolution. Okay, I'll tell you the gates. The first gate that she has to get through is the gate of knowledge, but it has to be real knowledge, not just the, the rationalizations of the mind that often works for the likes and dislikes, right? It's the real knowledge of reality. So that, that's kind of a redundancy. Knowledge should only be of reality. The other stuff is opinion or uh, false ideas or likes and dislikes. Real knowledge always is reality, but we have to make that clear nowadays. So the developing the knowledge of reality, and she finds, as I said before, that reality is only only accessible through direct experience. So she goes through that and learns a lot, a lot of knowledge. But the thing about knowledge is, it's all inherent to us. We just have to wake up to it and realize it and get through all of our distractions and confusions that our mind is usually cluttered with. Don't you agree? No? So, she goes through the realm of knowledge and then comes to the next gate where it says, the science of self. Oh, God. Well, what does science mean? Skira, the Latin word that comes from the root skira, which means to know. So the real expert knowledge of self, okay? So there are a lot of things to know. She has to learn like certain things that she needs to keep herself, keep herself away from, that are contrary to her. We often cultivate relationships with things in life that are harmful to us, that are contrary to us, against our well-being, against our very identity. It's a good idea to not cultivate them for yourself, but to stay away from them. And conversely, you should learn to cultivate a relationship with those things that are congruent with you, nurturing to you, healthy for you, they're part of you, to, to uh, establish that relationship. You know how many people, you know, young, young people, when they have their first love lives, like somebody today told me about her, her daughter who, no, about herself, she wanted a relationship with macho men only <laughs> in the beginning, right? Well, what, what can you predict about that, right? So you have to learn to create relationships with those things that are congruent to you. The science of the self, to really get to know what the self is. When we talk about the self, we mean 
the real identity that you are, not the ego identity. Now there's, I could talk for days on this, but the ego is a false perception of yourself. Ego is a false relationship, false way of thinking about yourself as being just part of the material realm. I'm a body. Well, and for those of us who graduated from high school or college, we also have a mind, we know. So we're a body and mind, right? That's our identity. Well, that's not your identity at all. Those are momentary things about you that can change. But your identity is permanent. That's what you always are. Now, we confuse the things that are permanent about us and the things that change about us. We think they're the same thing. No, they're not. Uh, the fact that your mind changes doesn't mean that you, are, there's nothing permanent about you. Your mind will always change, right? Especially if you're female. <laughs> Chauvinist. <laughs> I thought I'd just try that out on you and see if you're listening. So the point is, your identity is what you permanently, fundamentally are. Most people have no idea of what their identity is. I've had, I've been invited at times to speak to a convention of business leaders. And let's say there's an auditorium full of four to 500 business leaders. And I say, okay, turn to your neighbor and speak about your typical client's identity. And oh, go ahead the sound of the auditorium is, gets louder and louder and louder so that they can hear each other, right? Then I say, okay, turn to your neighbor and speak about your own personal identity, who you are. Do you know what the sound in the auditorium is? The sound of silence. It's intriguing. And then I say, okay, would you ever try to do a project or perform a function to serve a a client whose identity you don't know. Well, no, that wouldn't make any sense. Your project of life is to perform a function to fulfill you as your own client in this life, and you don't know your own identity. How is that practical? Right? And then, what is more important to you? To be successful at work or successful in life? What do you think most people say? No, actually most people say in life. But then that doesn't make any sense if you don't know anything about yourself and how to, how to successfully fulfill your life and conduct your life. So, okay, so the science of the self, really getting to know who you are, and not because some teacher says so, or some guide says so, or some scriptures say so, but you have to know through your own experience. But a guide can help you. So this guide helps her, him, through guiding her through experiences by which she says, yes, this is so. I experience this. I know this now. And now I will live accordingly. And then there are times when she's tempted to let go of what she knows and go back into her ignorance, but she catches herself over and over again. The next gate 
is the meditation of action. Oh boy. We know what the word action means, but we don't know what the word meditation means. Even meditation, most 99% of meditation teachers don't really have a good description of meditation, what it means. Meditation is that special state that I was talking about at the very beginning. The state in which everything about you is harmonized and concurrent in union and vibrating at a state of total quiescence, quiescence, quietude, harmony, stillness, but vitally present, not in some semi-comatose state, but vitally present in the experience of reality, in the experience of what is. That is the state of pure consciousness. That state of pure consciousness in continuity is called meditation. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Now, there are many things to get to know. Like, there's a lot of interest nowadays in meditation, isn't there? Right? You hear about that all the time. You have Harvard professors teaching meditation, and they have invented it, by the way. <laughs> and they teach mantra classes that they invented 5,000-year-old mantras. You know? They don't, they don't even know the, the, the irony of that. Um, so there's a lot of interest in meditation. And unfortunately, it's very frustrating for most people because they're basically told what meditation is, is sit still for 20 minutes or longer and keep your mind still. Make your mind be still. What do you do if you have a two-year-old boy and tell him, okay, be quiet now, and just be still. You got a rebellion on your hand, right? You tell your mind to be still, it's absolutely guaranteed to go in the opposite direction. You have to know what to do. You have to know, you have to understand your mind. You have to understand its characteristics and be able to own your mind, not you run after it. You direct your mind. And you even have a knowing relationship with your feelings and your emotions, which most people are out of touch with. Right? Have a real, brilliant, clear relationship with their intellect and their intuition. One of the most powerful and incisive instruments we have is our intuition. And we don't trust it. We call it just a woman's thing, right? Men don't have intuition. Well, of course they do. Einstein was great intuitive. He was intuitive. His intuition was greater than his intellect. That's why he was able to leap bounds, the bounds of intellect, and, and, and discover things that, that were true and are still being proven to be true because he trusted in his intellect, uh, his intuition. So in the science of the self, we learn to know all of the instruments that serve the self and through which the self expresses itself. So, but again, whenever we say self, we write it with a capital S because we distinguish that from the ego self, which is the mistaken idea of us, which we are attached to. That idea we are attached to, and that idea has an energy to perpetuate itself. That's falsity wants to perpetuate itself, and we have to overcome that. We have to become knowledgeable and smart, and most of all, what I often find 
I wish for people that is that they find themselves sufficiently worthy to give themselves the attentiveness to learn who they are, to learn to live true to who they are, and to live loving and honoring the being that they are. That they love being, being that they are. You see? So that's the path that she goes through. So meditation is a very important part of work because meditation is only living in the continuous awareness of the reality of us. That's another way of saying it. Okay? Meditation is living in continuously in the reality of being that we are. I often I speak much about being because what you are, do you know what is the most important thing about you? See, you have to learn how to think very simply when, when I ask you questions and when you're with me. The most important thing, do you know what is the most important? If you don't know, then how do you live your life sensibly? What is the most important thing about you? The most fundamental, the most simple. The most important thing about you is that you are. True or not? Do you, do you find within yourself, you know that's true? That, because if you weren't, how could anything else be important if you weren't being? Right? So the most important thing about you is that you are. Do you dedicate your life and found it upon that which is most important to you or that which is most superficial about you? You don't want to answer me. But that's a very important question, isn't it? Huh? So, meditation is living as you. Consciously, continuously, knowingly, and with full agreement. Isn't that a point? Agreeing with yourself. Agreeing with who you fundamentally are. Being in a state of agreement with that. Because do you know that almost all of us, if not all of us, have had a constant thing going on, an internal dialogue, that's one of criticism. There's something not good enough about you. There's something lacking in you. And by the way, this is to all this negativity is totally impervious to any evidence to the contrary. You could win a Nobel Prize for brilliancy in life, and you would say, boy, they're so stupid, I could fool them. Right? That's how that little negative track goes. Well, the thing is, once you get to know yourself for real, you learn to accept yourself unconditionally. And that acceptance is the foundation of love. All love has except the unconditional acceptance as its foundation. In fact, they're inseparable. If you accept somebody unconditionally, you love them. You can only love them if you accept them unconditionally. Something in you knows that's true. So, but you have to learn to accept yourself unconditionally, which is often the biggest tasks. And there are people who will say, I can spend my time on this. 
because I'm a parent. I, I, I accept my, my children, and I want to teach them good things and give my, my life and my energy to them. Well, how can you teach them acceptance when you live non-acceptance? You teach them not through your words, but through your way of being. You know? So, meditation. It's not a hobby. It's not a practice. It's not something we do for half an hour, an hour or two, or three or four a day. Just No, it's the way of life that makes sense, a way of being that makes sense. And you can learn to be in meditation all the time. And that even while action, because meditation is to be in the continuous and undistorted awareness of being. The awareness of, of you being, being, that that's what you fundamentally are. And to experience yourself as fundamental being means also to experience yourself as that pure energy. Because being is not an organ, it's not an object, it's, an, it's energy. And that energy has the awareness, the ability to be aware of itself. So conscious, being and consciousness, they're all interconnected, they're one. All of this, I know, too many words too quickly, but we learn to experience this and make this part of us, to live that way for real, not as a practice, not as something that I do, not, not just, just a learning. No, this is what life is for real. Okay? Now, I said earlier, people get frustrated because they're, they're not taught how to meditate. There are certain conditions that are necessary without me which meditation does not, cannot take place. So if you don't have a certain relationship with your, established within your body and your neurological system and your breathing and your mind and your feelings and emotions and so on, there is then the constant state of disturbance going on that is the ordinary state. In that state, there cannot be that total vibratory congruency that allows for the illumination and the state of total consciousness. When I speak like that, you know, sometimes there is a state in which everything comes together, like when people are very concentrated on something and then something, all of a sudden they go beyond their mental state. And so in sports, for example, like in the Olympics, right? You see sometimes people, they do things that, that seem superhuman. They say, I was in a zone, right? Or meditation is living in that zone to the nth degree. Okay? So I'm supposed to help you through an experience of meditation here this evening. And I sometimes do like a, a guided meditation of just a small taste of what it is to be in meditation. Would you like to experience that? And I'll go. There is a meditation in this book. And so I'll, I'll impart some of what's in this book to you. Okay? So I ask you, if you want, just go along. Just suspend questioning and doubting for a moment. Yes. Yeah. I think somebody turned off the air conditioning so that we... Nah, it doesn't interfere with me. I just hope it doesn't interfere with you. 
So it makes a little more noise. But can you still hear me well? At this tone, can you still hear me well? We're in a state of being. Good. That's encouraging. <laughs> okay, so I ask you to just go along. I will guide you step by step. What? Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Would you like to just stand up for a moment? Raise your arms, breathe deeply. Now, while you're still standing, let's stand here for a while. You just go along with my suggestions, step by step, just like, like that. Stay with it. Don't let the, the quietude of either the rhythm of the voice or anything lull you to sleep. Don't go to sleep. You'll miss out on the whole thing. And you'll get a much deeper rest going through this. Okay? So are you all right? Do you want to, some of you have sweaters on, maybe you want to take that off. Anyway, do what you want. Would you sit down, please? And sit way back with your back against the back of the chair. Have your feet flat on the floor, your hands on your legs or your lap. Don't have any, any papers. Don't hold on to anything. So the guide asks the wanderer, would you like to be in this experience now? The experience of being in the clarity of self. The experience of being continuously and free of distortion by applying the skills that he have learned of remaining focused with trust in yourself. Oh yes, I am ready for that. So imagine yourself now sitting in a beautiful meadow, suffused with clear morning light. The sounds and scents of nature embrace you, and you can be at peace. Establish yourself in a physically in a place of effortless balance, with your body deeply relaxed. Cause your breath to flow in natural rhythm. Withdraw your mind from all outward-going tendencies. Bring it inward and have it devote its full attention to simply observing the flow of your breath. So this is what, how you'll keep your mind focused on a point of your choice. Your mind simply observes the flow of your breath without commentary, without question. Just observe. The breath enters your body through your nostrils, goes to your lungs, and then exits again. Soon you notice that your mind quite naturally comes to rest in the area where your breath goes, 
The area of your lungs is also the area of your heart. So invite your mind to be steadily present and at home here in the area of your heart. Think of that as your center. And you can make a determination now to, that you will sincerely continue to, to devote your mind to this experience. To be present in a wonderful, relaxed state. Consider my voice now as your inner voice in self-acknowledgement. So consciously cause your whole body to relax deeply. You can bring this about by focusing the powers of your mind upon any part of your body you choose and telling that part, relax now, let go, even if you have not done this before. So we can start with your feet. Send your feet the signal to relax. Say to your feet, relax, and they will relax. And feel relaxation streaming through your feet, upward through the ankles, into your calves. Relax your calves. Feel them relaxing. This is an active engagement now. Send relaxation flowing into your knees, all around and throughout your knees, into your thighs, cause your thighs to relax, all the way up to your hips and pelvis. Relax, relax. From your feet up to your back, let your relaxation flow freely. Relax, relax. Now send relaxation flowing up your back from your seat to your lumbar area, up to your rib cage, into your shoulders. Feel your entire back suffused by the feel, feeling energy of relaxation, especially your spinal column, vertebra by vertebra, relax, including the soft tissue in between, as well as all the nerve strands traversing the spinal column. Relax, relax, relax. Send relaxation flowing throughout your entire back. Feel the letting go, the opening up. Relax your back, relax. From your shoulders, send the relaxation down through your arms, into your hands, through the tips of your fingers, let go, relax. Hands and arms and shoulders, be relaxed. Now cause relaxation to flow from your shoulders into your neck. Feel release throughout your neck, every muscle and bone of your neck, relax. Now send relaxation streaming into your head. Tell your head to relax. Feel the relaxing wave of energy flow from the top of your head, down through the forehead and temples and brow. Relax now. Let go. Stay steadily present in this experience. 
Let go even in your eyes and your nose relax. Feel your mouth go slack along with your tongue and jaw. All the little facial muscles become smooth and relaxed. Your entire head relax inside and out. Feel it. Cause the relaxation flow of energy to radiate throughout your throat into your chest. Relax. Let your chest feel open and expansive and free. Relax your abdomen and loins. Relax. Relax. Now to the insides of your body. Consider all the organs. Tell them to relax. Kidneys in the small of the back, relax. The whole reproductive system, relax. Relax through the anus, colon, intestines, and stomach, relax. Send a signal to all these parts, even if sometimes you don't feel them, just trust. You have that effect. Relax your liver on your right-hand side, just below the rib cage. Relax your pancreas and spleen near the stomach. Relax. Relax your lungs throughout the chest cavity. Have them feel open and free. Now your heart. Your heart serves you steadily even while you sleep. Please invite your heart to relax. Relax deeply, heart. Relax. Release. Flow more evenly and easily, and just a bit more slowly. Relax, dear heart. Relax. And now your brain. Tell your brain to relax. Just have it go into a state in which it suspends all unnecessary activity. Let it rest. So you have your whole body relaxed now, inside and out, including every organ and all your systems, down to the cellular, even the molecular level. Feel all in one unimpeded flow of total relaxation. Throughout this deep reaching process, you've created a flow of harmonious energy. Your breath has become much more even, more natural. Consciously cause your breath to flow in harmony with nature. Observe its effortless flow. Simply observe like an impartial bystander. Just observe the flow of your breath. Do not comment. Just observe in silence. As before, you follow your breath as it enters through the nostrils proceeds to your lungs, and then flows out again 
be aware of the fluid continuity between inhalation and exhalation. That relaxation flow ever deeper. Just observe as the natural rhythm of your breath helps you go deeper and deeper into conscious experience of yourself being. Now you are simply experiencing yourself being. As you inhale and follow your breath to the area of your heart, your center, you experience a sense of expansiveness. Feel the expansiveness. There's no need for you to cause that to happen. Simply allow yourself to experience the expansiveness as it spontaneously occurs. Similarly, as the exhalation occurs, experience this beautiful sense of letting go, being in the purity that naturally accompanies the outgoing flow of your breath. Just let go. Relax. Remember to be focused in this entire experience. So you experience yourself in expansiveness and release. And the area of heart, which you now consider as your center, you invite your mind to be at home here. Make itself at home, be completely relaxed. Your mind has to do nothing here. Just be here. And with your focus conveyed by your breath to the area of your heart, you become increasingly aware of this area. This is your point of balance, your point of steadiness. Your energies converge here in your center. So your heart, your mind is at home. Be at rest here, mind. Be at home here. Relax. Just be present. Be calm. Be at ease. So you can feel your mind luxuriating in the comfort and ease of its home, in the cave of the heart, your center. And now your feelings are naturally drawn here as well. Allow with your intellect and intuition and senses all of your faculties to be present here with your mind. For the mind is their coordinator. So you visualize your faculties seated in your center, effortlessly balanced. They're comfortably at home in the cave of your heart, in harmony with themselves and with each other and with you in unity. So your faculties devote their continuous attention now to you the indweller of the center. You who is aware of self now, aware of being, 
You experience yourself now that you are, that you're being. This is your real identity. The power of being is your essence. And all that is, is being. So the power of being is the essence of all that is. So you are experiencing self now as the all-pervasive one self. Self in self-awareness. Aware of being aware. Consciousness without limit. Be simply and wholly absorbed in that. Silently witness your mind as it shines with the knowledge of who you are and rests in utter tranquility. Your feelings are at ease. Your emotions at peace. Everything about you is balanced in your core, in harmony, deeply relaxed. And as you continue in this state, your mind is ever more attracted to this beautiful experience of being at home, deeply relaxed and at peace. Absorbed in consciousness, the awareness of being. And this makes it easier for your mind to resist the false allure of distractions. You're at peace now. Dwell in that. Remain in the state from moment to moment, breath to breath. And joyously be engaged in the experience of yourself and the limitless realm of being. Continue in the state of self-experience as you go on with your life. And gently stretch out your arms overhead. Inhale and exhale deeply. And relax. Continue to relax. 
So now as we continue, we can still be in that awareness of ourselves and relate to what we're talking about to ourselves. So I'd like to just conclude with uh, a few paragraphs from the very ending of the book when the wanderer gets to where she's always wanted to be. And I'll just start anywhere. The guide emphasizes each of the four gates expands your perception to limitlessness. The gates are there not to keep you out, but to empower you truly to come into the very core of the royal realm, to recognize what understanding and vision and realize your true self, to self-realize. So not just to self-know or self-belief or self-have something to talk about at the next California cocktail party, but to self-realize. That means realize means to make real your relationship to the being that you are. That's self-realization, okay? When you went through the gate of knowledge, you learned that knowledge is the most direct means to enter the realm of fulfillment. Without real knowledge about yourself, you cannot direct your faculties, you cannot inspire yourself toward your fulfillment. You cannot be fully yourself without knowing who you are. Thus, honor your knowledge of being. The guide continues. When you went through the gate of the science of self, you recognized that abstaining from behaviors contrary to self and cultivating behaviors congruent to self, like harmlessness, non-grasping, positive observances, and meditation, these are the most direct means for attaining the core of the royal realm. You became an expert at the science of self. When you went through the gate of the meditation of action, you learned to do action in effortlessly balanced consciousness in meditation. So again, we don't just sit for meditation for a certain amount of time a day. We want to be in that state as expressing the self through our actions, through our work, through everything that we do. And then in return, experiencing ourselves through those actions again. And then expressing ourselves through them. You see what I mean? So there's, there's a constant consciousness, a continuous experience of the continuity of being. No disruptions. And then you feel no lack. You feel not left out. You feel not emptiness. You know, when I traveled in many parts of the world, Many of the people there were materially much, much uh, less gifted than we are, right? When I came back to, the, to our homeland here, the overwhelming feeling I got and observed when I walked through the streets and saw people, their faces, anxiety, feelings of uh, 
anger, need, lack, that you don't see in, in many other cultures where people who have less have so much more than we do in terms of being with themselves. And it occurred to me, this is so unnecessary. All of the, the material things that we have, they should make it easier for us to focus on ourselves because we don't have to focus on our survival as much as a lot of other people do, right? And that can take a lot of attention to survive. We got that taken care of mostly, right? And we think our, our bills have to do, now they don't have to. That's imagination. So, to be in a state of knowledge and a state of acceptance and a state of honoring of ourselves. So you, when, when you went through the gate of meditation of action, you learned to do action in effortlessly balanced consciousness. You learn to act as the universal being acts. Thus, you experience the unitive state in action, interconnected in action, and found that the most direct means to the royal realm is to be actively engaged in the experience of being in all of your actions. In this unitive state, you know you are being who is manifesting or expressing self through everything and everyone and yourself. Then you went through the gate of love and devotion, where you discovered that to be the most direct means of gaining the royal realm. You became a great devotee. Each of the four gates is the most direct means, and each gate is indispensable to entering the realm of eternal being. Be aware, says the guide, and this is important. Knowledge alone can be dry and empty. Knowledge alone can be dry and empty, distant and cold. A plaything that the ego uses to create confusion and rationalization. Devotion without knowledge can be dangerous, as detrimental as the blind urgings of nature without control and direction, and just as greedy and unrefined. Look at the wars. The dark realm seems devoted to destruction of its people and environment because they lack knowledge, not material knowledge, not technical knowledge, but knowledge of reality. But even knowledge and devotion and love are still not enough, for they must be related to the moral, ethical, and practical expertise learned in the science of self. Knowledge, devotion, love, and the science of self are not enough, for they can be ephemeral and passing, not substantial. They are momentary and without aim if they are not enacted with a meditation of action. So in other words, if you just talk about it, you're just a hypocrite. You have to live it. If you do not act as royal being acts, then knowledge, love, and expertise 
are merely superficial. You'll become disappointed and discouraged again. And then you say, nothing works. It's all hopeless. You can make a scientific experiment with all you have learned. Simply implement through your own practice all the lessons you've gained traversing the four gates, and you will know clearly through your own experience, not from what I have told you, and not, what from, not from what someone else says, you will know clearly that reality works. Reality works. I know that from having lived in Germany, because the word in Germany for reality is Wirklichkeit, which means that which works. So they don't have the word reality, they say that which works, that's reality. Isn't that interesting? Our language, language expresses our discoveries of in evolution. You know? So when she attains to this realm, she finds that she is really at home here and that she's always belonged here. And that the state that she lived in before was not her inherent state, was not her native realm. And through having gone through these different realms, she has finally freed herself from the false attraction of the habitual states that she's grown up with. The state of being distracted, of being isolated, of being needy and wanting and lacking. She's learned to accept herself unconditionally, to love herself, and feel herself, be herself, interconnected with all forms of being, because that's what we all share in, in the power to be. Everything that is, is being. I hope you found this entertaining this evening, <laughs> and I thank you for being. final word to you is have a good life if you want to. <laughs>